The great feast of our Lord's birth is not far away. When we get to that day, can you think of anything greater than God's love more fully alive in your marriage and family? Join us in choosing to receive that unsurpassed gift right now. Presents for Christmas is a seven-week adventure into the very heart of Christ's Mass. Find out more and join us now at PresenceForChristmas.com. It's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E-F-O-R Christmas.com. everybody and welcome to another very special fall majesty of fall unveiling around us in the leaves edition of ignite radio live over the five mighty stations of annunciation radio for the almighty you are with greg and stephanie schleter and we are blessed to be with you tonight and we have a wonderful guest on the phone that you don't want to miss So, folks, if we're driving around and our eyes are open, we experience the majestic beauty unveiling around us. And Scripture communicates this. Scripture communicates that all of creation uh, reveals God's glory. And let's take note of the fact that the majesty in these leaves correspond to an inner dying, that what we are moved by corresponds to death, and it's the journey we're all on, life, death, and resurrection. That's our nature. Imago Dei. And when we forgot it, when we were in amnesia, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came on earth to reveal to us that nature, to awaken us to our nature and our identity and our mission, life, death, and resurrection. And uh, we're all probably experiencing it to some degree, and we should be. We're not made for this place. We should always feel a little bit alienated, as it says in Scripture, pilgrims, a little bit awkward, a little bit not altogether uh, comfortable. If we are, we're missing something because there's a much greater place that we're destined for. So this season, as we drive around and appreciate that great beauty, let's acknowledge that we are passing through and that we're meant to to follow the steps of Christ in the Spirit. And I use that also to maybe color in, pardon the pun, a little bit of our subject tonight, which is going to be a little difficult for us. And I might set it up by simply saying our faith, which we're all called to have, is most tested in adversity. Our faith is most tested in adversity. And perhaps it's never more difficult than when that adversity is coming from the institutional church. Now, it's clear and important. It's important that we make clear here that the church, the the very body and presence of Christ is perfect. But insofar as God entrusts us humans to be instruments of his salvation. And we are imperfect. Throughout the ages, it has been imperfect, and it will be imperfect. Right now, I'm reading the letter to a suffering church by Bishop Barron. And in so many words, he's saying that, you know, church authority, who would place position and reputation above souls destined for eternity, he used a word to describe that betrayal. And uh, it's so important for us right now to um, maybe recognize that our formed consciences are sovereign, that we as Catholics are meant to follow our formed consciences to where God leads us. So our guest tonight is one who I believe is really heroically navigating this course um, and has a background story to share with us about how do we do this? How do we understand it? And in his case, a specific way through an organization he's founded called the Daniel 
Coalition. So he comes to us by way of Michigan. He's an attorney. Just a little bit of background on our guest, Jason Negri. First of all, I was blessed to know Jason as head of the pro-life organization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville perhaps 30 years ago when I was at Miami University of Ohio leading our group. Jason was heading up the charge there and uh, just an undergraduate with some very dynamic, exemplary leaders at Franciscan University when a lot was going on throughout the country. They're in the paper practically every week for a godly boldness, and Jason was at the head of that. So that was 30 years ago. But anyways, Jason, and this is just sort of a short, some highlights of his bio. He is a lawyer at the State Bar of Michigan, admitted to practice before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, He's co-founder of the Religious Liberty Law section of the bar. He has a number of professional positions. He's an author who's written articles for Faith Magazine, as well as CrisisMagazine.com, and uh, some of you may recognize Columbia, the monthly magazine of the Knights of Columbus. He's also published by Catholic Answers. Uh, so a lot of um, insight and wisdom that he brings. He's spoken on Al uh, Cresti. He's been a guest on his program and Bob Gilligan's program. So we're very blessed that he's with us tonight to share with us his background story and to uh, give us greater insight to this Daniel Coalition, as difficult as it, as it is. And I'm going to lead us in prayer right now, just that we might be open, all of us, to understanding what it means to live heroic, authentic Catholicism today, especially in the difficult circumstances of a very imperfect institution that we are part of and that surrounds us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we avail our hearts and our minds to you. You fashioned us for your indwelling spirit. We are faced with very difficult obstacles today, things that may be confusing and foreboding, and things that may threaten and challenge our virtue. But Lord, we come to you to seek that fortification, to live truly according to you, the good, beautiful, true, and one, that you forge in us confidence in our consciences, that we can follow you in the most difficult of circumstances and give you glory in everything, however difficult. We ask this in your name through Christ our Lord, and we entrust it to our Blessed Mother in this month of October. Hail Mary, full Full of grace, the the Lord Lord is with thee. Blessed Blessed art thou among women. Blessed Blessed is the the fruit fruit of thy womb, womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy Holy Mary, Mary, Mother Mother of God, God, pray for us sinners. sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And forgive me, I must say, if I was a little scattered, we had phones going off here just as the program began. I had no idea what was happening. Every (laughs) phone was going off, and hopefully my thoughts were somewhat coherent in setting this up. But anyways, Stephanie. So as our regular listeners know, we love to proclaim the Scripture verse, Revelations 12.11. They defeated the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, our Holy Mass, that we're so blessed to have as Catholics, and by the word of their testimony. So we are blessed tonight to have Jason Negri with us as Greg did the bio introduction. But I just want to give you a chance, Jason, to give us a little bit of your testimony and how you came to know the Lord in your life. Well, um, I guess I was like so many others. I was a cradle Catholic for many years. Um, growing up in Long Island, New York, where... Let's hear a little accent. Long Island. Long Island. Oh, no, no, I've tried so hard to get rid of that. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, and and I really didn't take my faith terribly seriously um, until my mother uh, came back to the faith Mm. and started really practicing her faith again when I was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, and and she kind of brought me with her. Um, She started attending uh, the conferences during the summertime at Steubenville, 
And when it came time for me to go to college, that was pretty much my my first and only choice. (laughs) As a good mother looking out for her son. Right, exactly. She she didn't really, she said, you know, you can go anywhere you want, but we're only going to help pay for it if you go to Steubenville. There you go. So that was pretty much decided for me. Um, So I went for a year and and figured I I absolutely loved it, so I decided Mm -hmm. to stay. And that's really where... um, where I had, if you will, my, my, my personal, spiritual, and intellectual reversion to the mm. faith. You know, I was always a decent kid. I just, my faith was not my, my top priority until I was in that environment at Franciscan University, and I really started learning what it was all about. Uh, and, and I got involved in the pro-life movement during my freshman year and started actually treating abortion as if it were as bad as I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I fell in love with, uh, with C.S. Lewis, and Frank Sheed, and started mm. really being uh, intellectually grappling with my faith for the first time in my life. Uh, so that, that's really where it started. And then I, I met the woman that I was to marry during my years there. And, Go, Samantha. Uh, started our family, and the rest is history. Yes, her name is Samantha. Superstar Samantha. I think I knew her sister, Jen, who was maybe at the helm of the pro-life movement also at the time. And it was yes. kind of beautiful to see, uh, if you, I guess you use the word courtship, you and Samantha. I just have a smile on my face as I think of the two of you. I also have to add another element here. Jason, you're very gifted. I don't know if you still keep up on it, but as a gifted musician, you were playing uh, music often, uh, even good secular folk stuff. I remember playing out or wherever it was, a couple miles away. You have a good memory. Yeah, well, uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. You know what? We ought to be as Catholics. I love the Renaissance picture that faith is woven into that stuff, and you knew some great, good folk music. You sang it well, played it well, and uh, so anyways... Another great Catholic feather in your cap. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I continued that too. Incidentally, I do still play guitar once in a while. And uh, my, when my children got old enough to uh, to do it well, we actually cut a, a family CD. Oh, fun! Very cool. Well, Jason, we're going to navigate into this. If I'm not cutting you off, was there more you wanted to add to sort of the the Jason Negri coming to faith backstory? Um, no, I mean that that's that's the backstory and the origin of it. I we were in Steubenville for a number of years. And then when Ave Maria Law School started, I, uh, I felt the call to do what I had always thought I wanted to do, was to go to law school. And it was a dream that I thought I gave up when I started having a family. But, uh, but Ave Maria made it possible because, of course, they were in their, their very first year and they were desperate for good quality students to come. Mm-hmm. So uh, I made the, the stereotypical deal with God. And uh, <laughs> my wife and I prayed about it and realized that, if all right, if we can dispose of our house in Steubenville, and if I score high enough on the test to get the full scholarship, then we'll go. And um, things, uh, literally two months before the doors of the school opened, uh, was when I made my decision to go, and everything fell into place. That's so, awesome. Continued my education, got my law degree, and that's what brought us to Michigan. So, Jason, we have crossed uh, paths as many people from great schools like Steubenville have over the last 30 years who have made a tremendous impact. And um, it was perhaps a couple months ago, a number of months ago, you'd contacted me, and I was aware on the uh, Internet of, of Janet Smith and others beginning to stand up and address some of this difficulty. There's no greater anguish than the kind of tumult that is t- took place and, and is challenged pressing in the church today than things by priests and uh, bishops and clergy. You are fully engaged as a lawyer full-time, but you're also leading this Daniel Coalition. Before you tell us what that's all about, give us some of the backstory of your experience that maybe we discussed early today. Well, I think like many young committed Catholics, I had a sense that something was off in the church. Um, 
there, there was a sense, even at Franciscan University, that those of us who were taking our faith seriously knew that there was a disconnect between our practice of the faith and our embrace of, of the beauty of the Bride of Christ and the institutional church versus the way it was all too often uh, portrayed by her own leaders. Mm-hmm. There was obviously something very wrong with the way some of our bishops and priests were presenting the faith. They were, they were terribly uninspired. They were allowing things to, to go on, if not actively promoting things that were so obviously harmful to the human person and antithetical to the faith of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was just a, a sense of kind of salutary neglect on our part. Okay, fine. Yeah, the bishops and the priests, they're, they're doing their thing, but I'm actually trying to pursue holiness and, and live a truly, fully Catholic life. And, and I think a lot of us were content to just live that um, that disconnect because there was really nothing we could do about it. You know, we as Catholics are conditioned to a hierarchical church, and any suggestion that um, you know that that maybe you know better than a priest or a bishop is met with suspicion mm-hmm. on the part of, of people. We're we're trained mm-hmm. that way. Um, I think there's a sense of deferring to the experts. You know, mm-hmm. those of us who didn't make the church our entire life maybe felt a little inadequate confronting those who did. It's not our turf. Um, we know that there's something seriously wrong with letting homosexual men become priests, but we're not prepared to pursue that vocation ourselves, so we feel like, well, what can I say? Mm. Well, all of that changed for a lot of people in 2002 when the initial sexual abuse scandal broke. And I was, I was very busy with very young children and actually in law school at the time. Um, so while I was aware of that scandal breaking, it didn't impact me as much as it should have back then. I was still relatively young and, and had other priorities. Sure. Um, and I say that not as an excuse, but to contrast it mm-hmm. with what happened in the summer of 2018 when the McCarrick scandal broke. Because at that point, I had been more established as a professional, as a man, more confident and sure of myself, and more aware that these problems in the church had been brewing for decades and they were not going to go away by themselves. So when the affair with Cardinal McCarrick came out and hit the news, the headlines, I started reading all sorts of stuff. I've never been a theologian. Uh, I never formally studied theology. It's always been informal and on the side. Mm-hmm. But I, I, despite that, I still strive to, to pursue the faith and holiness in my own way as best I can. And I'm a student of the human condition. Mm-hmm. So... I started contacting people that I knew, uh, friends of mine, colleagues, people that I knew from, from my days at Steubenville or at the law school, uh, and Greg, you said yourself, you're one of the people that I reached out to at the time, trying to have a dialogue with people whose opinions I trusted to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we solve this mess? You know, I'm a lawyer. We're problem solvers. We, we like to try right, to come right. up with solutions to problems. That's what we do professionally. So in these conversations I was having with lots of people, I got a lot of good feedback, a lot of good synergy, and came to the conclusion that the best thing I can do right now is probably work locally. Can I pause you a second, Jason? I love your train of thought. And I just want to ask you, and if you want to decline, plead the fifth or whatever, this is personal for you. This is more than just an academic love of the church and seeing some systematic things that are problematic that, if you will, have surfaced significantly in a 16-year span of time. This is something that uh, has impacted your own personal background to some extent. Do you want to address that at all? Yeah, yeah, I do. Because, like you say, it wasn't just the, the objective horror and disgust that I and so many other people felt at 
the prevalence, the widespread clerical sexual abuse problem in the church. Um, family members of mine had suffered at the hands of clerical sexual abuse. Mm. And the more I got into this issue and started talking about it on social media, the more people confided in me that they themselves had been victimized at some point. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people would be absolutely shocked if they knew how many walking wounded were Mm. around us, victimized by priests and clergy. It's a lot worse than most people want to admit. You're experiencing, uh, very personally, for those who've studied this, know that the impact is, for many, lifelong. While simultaneously, as you indicated in the beginning, in a context that wants to put pressure to say, don't talk about it, dismiss it, we don't want to bring scandal, and so needing to come to a place, shall we say, of maturity, I might even say holiness where uh, things hidden in the darkness do come to light and need to come to light, and there needs to be a responsible way of, of bringing those things to, to the light. Does that accurately maybe describe some of those tensions that uh, brought you to 2018-19? It is. I, I think there definitely is uh, institutional inertia to overcome. I, I even have it now. You know, I try to discuss the issue um, on social media in, in certain Facebook groups, for example, and, uh, and people well-meaning good Catholics, as far as I can tell. I mean, I don't know them personally, but based on their statements, they are faithful Catholics. They are just as disgusted as I am uh, by, by this, this rot and this filth that has permeated the Church. But they're still looking for the solution to come from the very source of the problem. Mm. They still want to defer to the priests and the bishops. They're looking for, they're waiting, crying out for a good and holy bishop who can lead them to, to holiness and salvation, somebody that they can rally around. And they still haven't gotten the message that we can't leave it up to the clerics anymore. That is the, that is the essence of clericalism that got us to this problem. Now, the main problem isn't clericalism. The main problem, of course, is the, the corrupt predator priests mm-hmm. and the, the bishops who have allowed or even encouraged this type of behavior for decades in our seminaries. But what allowed the problem to get so bad is the average lay Catholic giving in to clericalism, mm. letting Father do what he wants, trusting that Father knows best, so wanting to believe desperately that the bishops and the priests weren't as bad as some of them have proven mm. to be. So this word uh, bears maybe some definition. We've spoken of it here, and you've colored it in here. Clericalism is what? It's sort of an unquestioned regard for those who are in clerical ranks. Go Treating ahead. priests with undue deference. Let's put it that way. Okay. Giving priests the benefit of a doubt that they haven't earned. And it's looking at anybody who wears a Roman collar as somehow having authority over things that they don't necessarily have authority over. You know, uh, ordination doesn't confer every charism known to man. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a man a better uh, administrator. It doesn't make him uh, any wiser. In, in certain things, yes, he's had, he's had formation, obviously, but there's a whole lot of lay people out there that have received excellent formation as well, and I trust their judgment far more than I trust that of most priests. Mm. But we as Catholics are not conditioned in this way, where we're conditioned in the exact opposite direction, to defer to clerics. I'm, I'm on my parish council, and I, I love my pastor. My pastor is a very good man, but I see it all the time when everybody's knee-jerk reaction to every issue that comes up is, well, what does Father think? What does Father think? And yes, there's some basis for that, because legally, and in, in the diocesan apparatus, he does have primary responsibility for the parish. But we're not talking about major things like that. 
it's basically people, good faithful Catholics, in a sense, almost are, are frozen from advancing in responsibility for the church if a priest comes around. And, and one of the people who was working with me on establishing the Daniel Coalition here in the Lansing Diocese has articulated this. He, he calls it the co-responsibility of the laity. And a lot of us have, have started adopting that term I like that to describe what we're doing. Yes. Essentially, it's, it's, it's what you and Stephanie are doing. The work of the gospel is too important to be left to the priests. They can't mm-hmm. do it alone. They were never meant to do it. I was just going to say that that's never how it should have been or was supposed to be, right? It's always. Exactly. So I want to shine a light on something, Jason, that I think is critical for us to understand, and you've put a lot of thought into it. Prior to three or four years ago, we have lived and breathed the air of a clerical culture. You made the statement, and particularly in the sexual scandal crisis stuff, but in all regards, we might say, we can't find a solution from the source of the problem. Now, right out of the gates, we know there may be some, as you say, apparatus issues that that are conferred authority that must be respected. And I think, you know, as Catholics, we recognize that. So help us understand how can lay people, how are we called to help bring about the healing and transformation within our proper callings? I think it, it starts with, first of all, recognizing that, that clericalism itself is a problem. Um, it, it makes us, every, you know, everybody else, all the lay Catholics, all of us who haven't received holy orders, it makes us abdicate our rights and our responsibilities as Christians. And to, to give that up because we think that Father should just take care of it, or if we're, if we're always waiting for somebody with a Roman collar to tackle and solve these problems, we're going to perpetually be disappointed, right. and then the problems aren't going to get any better. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I would, I would love to see a strong, good, and holy bishop stand up and take on all that's wrong with, with the hierarchy right now. Mm-hmm. I think a, a bishop like that would have instant credibility and faithfulness and loyalty among the faithful Catholics who are crying out for a solution to this. Mm. Agreed. But I don't think we can hold our breaths waiting for such a man to step up. Mm. I, I actually think it may come... I think the, the solution may present itself in the exact reverse order. I think the laity are going to step up and form some sort of cohesive solution, and that's going to be the inspiration for the good and holy priests and bishops to finally take on their own. Mm. This... this the issue of collegiality is a really big one, and I get it. Bishops especially don't want to call out other bishops because they have a, a collegial confraternity. It's kind of, I don't know if it's a, something they sign when they get their, their hats and their, <laughs> and their seats, um, but there certainly is a sense of collegiality among them, and they are very, very reticent to criticize other bishops. By the way, George Weigel's book, Courage to be Catholic, for any of our listeners, really captures in a very faithful but challenging and direct way that culture that uh, Jason is speaking about and what, if you will, contributes to that. Yeah, and I haven't read it. There's, there are so many great authors out there writing really good stuff on this. So that's, I'll have to add that one to my list. It's mm-hmm. true. Um, so how do we do so, it? How, how do well, we, how, I mean, I would say this, so, so to the average person, a good Catholic person who's listening, 
they're, they're, they want to they be holy, right? They're listening to the, the radio station, podcasts, etc., EWTN, and they're really striving after the heart of God. And this is sort of a new thing for us to get on the air and hear Raymond Arroyo and the Papal Posse and Monsignor Pope raise some significant questions, and then, if you will, to ennoble us to try to address these, dare I say, with respectful vigilance. And the vigilance being the new part. Respect, hopefully, is always there. But with a, a vigilance about specific things said and done that we ought to ask. So um, as you're experiencing that, and I'm experiencing that, you know, how do we ennoble Catholics to understand our role? And the, the Daniel Coalition is, I think, an example of one way that, that lay Catholics can, can contribute to the solution. Um, what we did is, after having these discussions with, with some prominent Catholics that I, that I knew, um, I got in touch specifically with some prominent Catholics here in my own diocese of Lansing. Uh, and we decided that we were going to have a meeting of people who were concerned about this and wanted to do something about it. So we had about a dozen people uh, get together in Ann Arbor September 1st of last year. Mm, very and recent. we compared notes, we talked about the situation, we talked about what was going on in our own diocese, and identified that there were two priests who were very problematic in our diocese, who had credible accusations against them. And as far as we knew, the bishop hadn't done anything about it. So we decided that we were going to. And we had one of our number who was willing to bring this to the attention of the bishop and point out that these two priests were very problematic and something needed to be done. And within a week of that meeting, both priests were removed Mm -hmm. from their ministry. So we're very fortunate in one sense that, that our bishop was very responsive to our concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, it took, however, this group of prominent laity to get together and apply a little bit of pressure to him to get him to move on these things. And I think you, you, you kind of articulated and referred to this earlier, you know, that the institutional church, in one aspect, is the illustrious, glorious bride of Christ. But in another, just as real aspect, she's made up of human beings. So we have to understand how human nature works. And accountability works for everybody. Yes. Just because a bishop has all the power and authority in the diocese doesn't mean he's not susceptible to some degree of accountability and public pressure. So all it takes is some people willing to stand up and apply that pressure and show him, look, encourage him, shall we say, to do the right thing. And that's pretty much what we've been doing. We were forced to issue a couple of press releases and publicly called out the bishop on a couple of points and things that he had said and done. And uh, I dare say so far it's been working. It's a healthy thing for everybody. There is, I think, appropriate respect and deference to his office, but we can't let that stop us from being properly critical when he makes missteps. So have you is, had, have you had ahead, much pushback from that, Jason? Um. I personally have not had any pushback at all. I'm not even sure the bishop knows my name, and I'm totally fine with that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But the organization, no, even the organization, we haven't had pushback, so to speak. Part of it is, again, I think our bishop is the right kind of person. I think he wants to do the right thing. He inherited some pretty bad situations from his predecessor, like I think every single bishop mm-hmm. in America has. Right. Knowing who we are and where we stand and knowing that we're not afraid to go public about certain things certainly helps. We're, we're not afraid to publicly back up what we're saying. 
also, to his credit, he's hired a lot of good people around him, and we have good communication and correspondence with them. So, honestly, a lot of these things are handled behind the scenes. That's great. We haven't had to issue a number of press releases precisely because we've been able to deal with these problems in conversation with people at the Chancery. Well, and um, I'm, I'm sure knowing your motive, right, and where you are coming from in the sense of um, wanting to do what is right and what is good and what is holy, and you're not abandoning the church. You're not trying to smear it in any way. It, but if anything, like you made the reference to earlier, it, it's an act of holiness, right, to call out appropriately and in love and to protect those who should be protected and just the whole notion of truth and charity. So that I'm sure there's receptivity also knowing that as tough as it is, I'm sure for them, unfortunately, to make some of those decisions, they know with whom they are, they are, uh, they're coming from, if that makes sense. I, I would like to think that's true. I, I, I do think it is. Um, I did have the opportunity to accompany one victim of clerical sexual abuse to her meeting with the bishop mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, and I, I was personally impressed by how he conducted himself, by how he received her, um, and by the, the promises that he made to her and, and what the diocese has done. So, um, again, a lot of credit goes to the individual man who is our bishop. Mm-hmm. I know of other people throughout the country in different dioceses whose experiences with their bishop uh, have not been as positive. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if they've proceeded according to exactly the same you know, formula and tactic that we used, um, they may have started off a little bit more confrontational out of the gate, and maybe sure. that kind of poisoned the relationship to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's hard for me to say exactly why, why it seems to be working for us. It's not perfect. We still have some, some ways to go here. But, um, but I think that the tenor here in the Lansing Diocese is definitely the trajectory is in the right direction. Um, and I think the Daniel Coalition is pleased with how things are going. Um, but it doesn't mean we can drop our vigilance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So action steps. Somebody right now happens to be listening, has an experience or concern or somewhere in that. What would you say to them right now? If they have an experience of having been the victim of any type of sexual assault or abuse by a priest in the Diocese of Lansing, I strongly encourage them to contact us. That was really part of the motivation when we first started. I was interviewed on, on Al Cresta. We had a press release. We, we tried to be as public as we could about the fact, hey, we're here. If, you, if you've experienced this, we will walk with you. We will help you uh, in your dealings with the diocese and try to achieve some measure of justice for you. Um, we were actually surprised that we didn't get a whole lot of phone calls. Hmm. Very, very few people reached out to us, and those who did talked about their abuse situations that happened decades ago, mm-hmm. where the priests were either in jail already or, or are dead. Um, there are no instances, we weren't contacted by anybody new regarding any instances of clerical abuse for here in Lansing, which is, which is good. Absolutely. Happened. And I will also say something else has contributed, I think, to, to the whole tenor of, uh, of our movement and how it worked out here is because right around the same time we formed, the Attorney General of the State of Michigan decided to open up an investigation into all seven of the Catholic dioceses here in mm-hmm. Michigan. So there was very much pressure from the state to turn over records, and they knew that everybody was watching them. So I have no doubt that that has also contributed to, um, you know, to how things have been going here. So there's a broader swath here that I like to... Um 
raise the question of, and it's whether or not or how we understand in this day whether or not we are a Christendom era or an apostolic era. And for our listeners, what do I mean by that? Christendom, you know, a culture where we can presume that many, if not most, of our institutions um, have a Christian quality about them. Kind of an assumption that people are going to church because they want to go to heaven and they want to be holy and they're going to tithe because it's what their mom and dad did and great-grandma did. And, uh, of course, that is not the case, as we've seen uh, Sherry Waddell's book, many others, uh, pronounce the fact, you know, 79% gone by the age of 24. We are in a very new situation, and Pope John Paul II, of course, calling us to a new evangelization, suggesting even the common words that we were used to, words like faith or Jesus Christ, have inoculated people, in fact, have caused them to be anti-Christian, uh, and, and just kind of more, as we say, nuns than there have ever been before. Those who profess nothing has, has steadily has increased dramatically. So we are not in a Christendom era anymore, which raises the other question, do we not need to consider ourselves today more in an apostolic sort of way. And what's that? That's the early church where, um, let's face it, there's a culture that's threatening. We see it politically. Uh, we see that experience ecclesially in a lot of regards now. But it, it taps within us the need to really own our faith, to understand our faith, that we might live our faith even if the institutions aren't supporting it. What we're experiencing, Jason, it seems to me, is a little bit of that as a church, a little bit of going through the crucifixion again. A sense of the church being profoundly purified. Uh, even Legionnaires of Christ might be iconic of this, right? Um, in many, many ways. And we see, a, I, I think, signs of revitalization within that order. But our church in general, many don't understand this. Younger people in particular don't understand this era that we're living in. And maybe those who are our age maybe are awakening to the call to evangelize or to try to reach in ways we never did before. The challenge to average lay Catholics and parents in living this in a robust way. I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I want to tap your ideas. Yeah, that, that, that is a lot to tackle. <laughs> well, I, I would say that I'm not sure I agree with your characterization of the state of the world that we're in right now. Okay. I tend to side with C.S. Lewis. Um, and he, Lewis, at one point, you know, he's, he's eminently quotable. Um, and I don't remember the exact wording, but he pointed out the differences between a pagan culture. Mm. and what we are facing right now, which might be deemed a post-Christian culture. Uh, pagan, you know, a pagan culture has people who are convertible to Christianity. Mm. So they're, they're pre-Christian. We can't take the same tactics nowadays as the early apostolic church took with pagan cultures, because Excellent. the post-Christian man of our day uh, differs from him, and this is the Lewis quote, as much as a divorcee differs from a virgin. Mm. As you said, they've been inoculated to the words of the gospel. Wow. Um, well put. So I think we need far more than words. I, mm. I don't know if the solution is any different. I just know that what we're dealing with, what we have to tackle, uh, is harder than pagans. These are people who have grown up in a uh, really, really superficial, Christian-tinged, post, but truly post-Christian environment. Uh, and they have, as you say, been inoculated against it. They think they know it. Because what they experienced was eminently unsatisfying to them. They haven't had that profound experience of the living God to know, mm -hmm. love, and embrace the faith that the apostles died for. Mm -hmm. and, and if you don't have that, if you never experienced that, sure, it's very easy to just, you know, reject all of it as just, you know, oh, that's, that's silly stuff, that's what my mom believes in. 
Um, and I, I choose those words deliberately. It's what my mom believed in, because I think one of mm. the biggest problems we're facing now uh, is the, the demasculinization of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Amen. Preach it, I mean, Jason. we see this all the time uh, at, at any average Catholic church in America. And I say average Catholic church. There are some outliers out there that are, that are fantastic. But generally speaking, you look around on the average Sunday Mass at the average parish in America, and you see a ton of single moms or mothers with young children. Mm. Where are the young men? Where are the middle-aged men? They're just not there, right? Yep. Our sons are being raised with a view that church is for women and sissies. Mm -hmm. And what are they going to get on a Sunday morning that's going to disabuse them of that notion? Yep. Well, even sometimes you look at the music or listen to different homilies or it's, oh, it's Lord, so yeah. soft <laughs> and so, you know, running through the fields and dancing in the forests. And <laughs> the like, stuff how is that, how does that uh, instill that masculine quality of spiritual leadership? So just a, <laughs> just a little yeah. aside. Um, no, I, no, it's, but, but it's true. And I think that's part of the problem. And to, to bring this a little bit more full circle, Greg, you had asked me earlier, you know, about solutions to the problem we're facing in the church right now. The, the more confrontational, organizational, diocesan-level approach to the Daniel Coalition is one thing. But I think another route that could be very effective is simply inspiring people, Catholics, especially men, to start getting involved in their parishes again. Yes, yes. If for is. no other reason than to show the young boys that are being dragged there by their moms that church is a place for men. Mm-hmm. Join your parish council, for goodness sake. Confront the errors being preached, either from the pulpit or being taught by the catechists in your church. Right? Mm-hmm. We, 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 too many people are just deferring, and they don't care. And even if the guys themselves go to church out of their Sunday obligation, if they're not engaged in the life of their parish, if they're not actually leading their parishes, they're losing out on a fantastic opportunity to make the difference that needs to be made. I think I look back on so many times growing up back, back in, in Long Island in the parish that I grew up on, uh, and, and I, I could have confronted our pastor so many times on things that he was saying and doing that were wrong. But at that time, I didn't have either the knowledge or the confidence or the standing in my parish, frankly, to do that. Well, now I do. Mm. As I mentioned earlier, my pastor is a very good man, but I'm now on the parish council. And even though I like him, I'm not letting him get away with with everything. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I think to be my appropriate part as an active, engaged member of my parish. You ha- you're doing what I can to lead the people around me to holiness. Taking your co-responsibility seriously. So, f- so folks, if That's not... That's what we all need to be doing. Amen. So not everybody can host a radio show with their spouse. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. No, but just for our listeners right now, folks, this, this can't be stated more strongly that if you are listening, you are not just a spectator. Um, yes, follow the godly guidance and counsel of every godly person God has given you. And notice I'm using that adjective, godly. And Catechism 1778 speaks of judgment. Of course, the word is used in two senses in Scripture. One is to condemn. We're not called to do that. That's God, the final decision. That's God's choice. But we are called to judge, that our consciences bear upon us specific moral acts that we are called to look at and maybe you know a lot of this era is meant to raise us up to a a way in a way that we can speak with confidence and uh, be anchored in christ because you know we heard this out of um out of nazi germany and many other troubled areas throughout our history that all it takes for evil to exist is for good men to do or say nothing 
Folks, all that takes for evil to exist is for good men to do or say nothing. And if we look at the circumstances of the little seven-year-old in Texas, is that enough? Is that not enough for us to recognize how much further we can allow this to go? I mean, what's it going to take before we realize the, the poverty that this culture is experiencing, the provision is us. The provision is us saying and doing something. I mean, is it abortion through nine months? And then obviously beyond those nine months, is that going to be enough? Or how about selling body parts? How about that becoming the platform for a major political party that's become institutionalized and all the candidates are fawning over each other as to who wants to kill the most with the greatest government sponsorship, our bills, coming out of our pockets? I mean, at what point do we recognize that we need to do and say something without which the culture around us is left to assume that all of that is legit and okay? So I think if nothing else to address this to what you're saying, and I agree with you, pagan versus post-Christian, it is inescapable. It is inescapable for us to call ourselves Catholics, to profess Christ, and not to respond in appropriate, bold ways to the things that are happening around us. And a lot of that is going to be addressing in, in, in beautiful, thoughtful, empathetic ways maybe people in our own families. Decisions that maybe our brothers and sisters are doing, our children are doing, and sort of leaning into that with great mercy, because we're all on that journey, right? But a willingness to address things, because what? We care for their eternal life. We care for, those, we care for their souls. So the Daniel Coalition, you know, I think in a significant way, Jason, it's sort of an institution, dare I say it, an institutionalization of this principle that um, we've been appointed and therefore anointed. We've been appointed and anointed. And maybe if, if you could maybe add some thoughts to Jason, what are some of the virtues that um, maybe we've allowed to set on the sidelines what we need to lean into by virtue of the grace flowing from the sacraments to, to break through the debris? What are some of the things that people like you and me, our spouses, our families need to maybe, I don't know, embrace more fully to live according to this appointing and anointing of this day? hard for me to say what we need to do to embrace it more fully, because the, the examples that, that you're giving, and, and many of the other people that I know, they're, they're already doing that. They're, they're doing, I think, admirable jobs. You know, they're, they're obviously frequenting the sacraments, staying strong, not giving in to, um, well, let's face it, we have a very, very cushy life here in America, yeah. right? Yep. Do think that's actually part of the problem, because the easier life gets, the less we think we need God. The easier our daily lives are, the more leisure time we have to spend on frivolous and stupid things instead of paying attention to what matters. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's all too easy for us to be distracted by how wonderful everything is around us. Um, the medieval idea of the veil of tears mm. doesn't really resonate with a lot of people because they have nonstop entertainment and every creature comfort they could ever want. Right. So yeah. that's another challenge. I, it's weird to think about it this way, but I think when it comes to embracing virtue and, fo and following Christ and leading a good Christian life, I think the very cushiness and comforts of our first world American lives are actually a hindrance mm. to that. And it's not until yeah. some crisis hits us, whether it's a personal one, the unexpected death of a loved one, um, or some sort of societal crisis, whether it's a breakdown in, in society in some way or an attack like 9-11 was, mm -hmm. suddenly things come back into, into sharper focus. So maybe we need to consider the degree to which all of us are tempted into worshiping the comforts 
instead of the comforter. In a specific example, Jason, last week we had the eminent Alan Keyes speaking at our Foundation for Life dinner with wonderful work being done in a very unified way of very faith-filled people in this community. But here we are with a room full, a taste of heaven, powerful speech on pro-life and the, the you know, Roe is dead because of the language and the DNA. If it can validate the humanity of a convicted criminal, it can also validate the humanity of an unborn child and the language in Roe speaks of personhood, etc., etc., and challenging us to really kind of live this out in a robust sort of way. But here's my thought. We're in this enclosed room we who have the money to pay for this, having this great meal in a country where we are safe, while simultaneously the evil persists in an abortuary that is still open in this city. And I guess part of me was, was just praying, Lord, awaken us beyond this nice night where we have a nice meal and hear a rousing talk to recognize that you're calling us to a way of life. You're calling us to be mindful that that battle that ground is being taken. If, 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 if we're allowing territory to be taken, we're not taking territory. And there are very specific ways, certainly prayer, right? Certainly fasting, absolutely. I've been, never been more convinced of the power of fasting. Um, but specific commitments, such as, you know, obviously praying the rosary. Are we going to the abortuary? Are we making a commitment on a weekly basis or more with this 40 Days for Life? Is this community awakening maybe even more to speaking the truth with love to those who need to hear it? To really praying for divine appointments, whether it's at you know Sam's Club or Walmart or maybe somebody online. I mean, there's never been a greater opportunity than this culture to speak the truth with love to those in, in the social media atmosphere, environment where people are at. Um, I think, you know, I'd ask the question, you know, if we were judged according to our posts, would we be regarded as Christian? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm all about that, but I'm, I'm a fallen, you know, sinner like anybody else working it out. But there's a great opportunity there, and I know we shouldn't get baited in stupid, silly conversations that are going nowhere, got it. But I still think there's a place for us to appropriately lean into making a statement of, I just I disagree with that, Susan, God bless you, but I disagree. Or, you know, I really want to affirm what so-and-so is saying. Right. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I, you know, whether or not we ought to be uh, exhorting our fellow Christians to be more ascetic and to be giving up these creature comforts, that's above my pay rate. I honestly don't know how, how effective that would be. Um, but I do know that we can at least extend ourselves more than we are right now. Even, you know, we are safe here in America. Nobody is going to be, you know, knocking on our doors in the middle of the night and dragging us out and shooting us in the street because we're professed Christians. Yeah. For gosh sakes, can we speak up a little bit in the public forum? Right. Can we admonish the sinner when appropriate? Can we, can we say things articulately in favor of Christ and that which is true, good, and beautiful? We all can and should be doing this. And, and we've, we have ceded far too much ground to, to the people who are actively working to undermine everything that we hold dear. And there, there are a lot of them. Social media is, is dominated mm-hmm. by them. Yes, there are, there are good people speaking out, and there are, are pockets and little groups on social media where, where Christians are holding together and holding their own. And that's, that's always going to be necessary, right? There's always strength in numbers. You feel more, more surrounded and supported, and you feel more comfortable and confident speaking out. But so many people will not say those words. They won't take those steps. They won't strike a blow for truth because we're shying away from all confrontations. We don't want to be perceived as being, um, you know, stodgy 
or moralistic or mm-hmm. judgmental, like you said. Yeah, divisive, um, I mean, those, those things yes. are they're terrible. I'm, the scales have finally fallen from my eyes. I like to be liked just as much as everybody else, probably a little bit more, because <laughs> you didn't mention it before, but I'm also an elected official, right? It matters to me what people think of me. Right. I have to get elected next year. Right. But by the same token, we can't concede everything away. I think we do have to be smart about how and when we say these things, but we can't always make excuses for not saying them. Well, we need heroes. And if we don't say them, nobody else will. We need a Particularly if we men don't say them. Yes. There's not going to be a perception that there's a strong, vocal Christian group out there that won't be intimidated anymore. We're not going to take what the culture is giving us anymore. We are going to stand up and reclaim our families and our parishes and hopefully even beyond that to our broader communities. And those are heroic actions. Nobody knows we're there. Right, right. We need to proclaim those. Unfortunately, they're seen as heroic now, where it should just be (laughs) part of the norm of living the Christian life. It's being perceived as heroic to say something about Christ on Facebook. My gosh. Right, right. That's pathetic. I want to just call attention back to uh, your wonderful organization, the Daniel Coalition. Folks, you can see more about it at danielcoalition.org, I believe is the website. Um, But you also offer other things that I just want to touch on. Um, I know that you offer uh, resources and retreats, I believe, for victims for healing. We, we ourselves aren't competent and we're not big enough to put on retreats, but we, we do strongly advocate for an organization called Grief to Grace. Mm-hmm. And they're a national organization as well. And their specific focus is conducting retreats for people who are victims of sexual abuse because the particular trauma that they have suffered um, it goes very, very deep, and it can it can really, really affect people terribly. So people can find out more about that there, healing. right? Right? Can't yeah, even imagine. Can't even imagine. And also, I noticed on your website earlier that um, you also offer support and encouragement for faithful priests who have been impacted by the scandal. Yeah, and and they have been. I've uh, last year when I was first putting this group together, I. I found myself speaking with a number of the priests in our diocese, and um, some of them have been just beaten down Mm. by the years of of having to Mm -hmm. deal with the dominant culture in the Church. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I do see, at least, again, at least here in Lansing, I do see a new springtime coming, and I think everything here is starting to move in the right direction, and the young, faithful, zealous priests are the ones who are very obviously on the ascendancy here, and it's wonderfully empowering to the older priests who have been beaten down by life right. and, and who have who felt that, and they lost that spark somewhere along the way because they weren't supported by their bishop and by their brother priests. That can't be stated strongly enough, uh, folks, you who are listening, that in fact many priests uh, right now carry this burden in a way we can't imagine because they have the primary passion and call to administer the sacraments. They are under the authority, and they have seen a lot of these things happen, and they've, uh, they've had anguish as they've met a good number of them have experienced it. They're frustrated by the way things have been managed. They would use the word clericalism uh, with derision as much as the rest of us would. They want to see transformation. They want to see souls come alive in Christ. Um, and I would say that, that to all of us listening right now, uh, what a great thing 
to be the one to write that note to our pastor, our priest, and say, I'm, I just want you to know you are in my thoughts and in my prayers. You know, I am, I am holding you very close, and uh, whether it's a holy hour a week or a rosary or something that they know that uh, we love and support them. You know, personal friends of mine who are priests comment on how little they do hear from others in a supportive capacity. And I'll say to you, priests, those who do speak out about these things with love but respectful vigilance, Gosh, it carries such weight on social media. We we thank you. It's powerful. I I can't tell you how many lay people are so emboldened and encouraged when a priest in particular speaks. And I think now those paths have been cleared ahead of us. When you have a Bishop Barron using the word betrayal, you know, when you have uh, Raymond Arroyo, when you've got Monsignor Pope articulating these things. This is not a bashing session, by the way. We're not talking about that. We're talking about creating an atmosphere of, of holiness, of healing, of transformation, which comes when things hidden in darkness come to light. And we have a forum to talk about them. And we can name what they are. And we can acknowledge we're on a journey. All of us are. But that not ought not keep us from addressing fundamental things that are happening. And Jason, I'm sure glad that you uh, have leaned into this, certainly with a number of others, but with this Daniel Coalition, um, to try to create a platform that will you know, bring support and encouragement to those who need to speak, to those who need to hear it. Um, right. So, I mean, that's just fabulous. In the short time we have here, Jason, is there anything burning in your heart that may have gone unaddressed that just is important? To whatever degree possible, I want to encourage anyone who's listening to, as uh, the papal preacher said years ago to John Paul II, coraggio, Mm. have courage, be not afraid. Stop thinking that it's somebody else's job and responsibility to do this work that needs to be done. It's yours. It's ours. And and this is starting right now for all of us to start taking this co-responsibility of the laity much more seriously than we've ever been trained to do. We're going to make some mistakes. We're mm-hmm. not going to say everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not used to doing a live radio interview like this. I'm just kind of winging it. You know, Fabulous. But somebody's got to do it. Someone has to, to step up and try to give that degree of encouragement to tell people, you've got to start doing this now. The apostles were willing to give their lives for this truth. Surely you can give up two hours a month to start going to your parish council meeting and speak up. Surely you can give up a little bit of your reputation and, and, and the good name that you've developed over the years in being a non-confrontational, mm-hmm. go-along-with-everything kind of person. Mm-hmm. All right? Not everything should be gone along with. Mm-hmm. These people need to be confronted at multiple levels. And if good men do nothing, the bad men will continue to thrive. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah, just encouragement for people. Step up. We're with you. Amen. Folks, you're tuning to Ignite Radio Live. So blessed to have Jason Negri with us, the founder of the Daniel Coalition. Um, and just to, to a rallying cry for all of us to seek God's grace and know that it's, it's not meant just to be at that feeling, emotional level, but it's meant to make its way into this world as the Word became flesh as we're about ready to enter into a season of more fully embracing the Word made flesh, the Advent season, to give you a little commercial now, folks who are listening. You know, in the depths of our hearts, we are all yearning for holiness. And God has provided the supply to that yearning for holiness. It's the season of Advent. So check out presentsforchristmas.com. Join us in the seven-week adventure into the heart of Christ's Mass. Sign up for free. Again, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E-F-O-R, Christmas. 
www.ministryofgracefromgod.com. A great season of grace about to be outpoured. Receive it in our marriages and families overflowing to the world. So blessed to have you all with us listening right now. Be encouraged, as Jason said. Let's just continue to remain in prayer. Uh, for all those who are called to reach and have confidence, you wouldn't ask us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done without providing the means to fulfill it. Have a blessed night. God bless you. This is an Ignite Flash Fire moment. Right now, can you think of one person you know who is struggling, in need of knowing God's love? If someone came to mind, God just spoke to your heart. We're going to light it up right now. Send them a quick message. It could be by Facebook, email, text message. Make it short and sweet. Simply tell them you were thinking about them. You appreciate them. You're praying for them. You're in it with them. That God loves them. If we respond to this simple flash fire prompting right now, together we'll move his kingdom a big step forward. Ignite Flash Fire is brought to you by MassImpact.us. Not just a moment, a movement. You know, Mass Impact and Ignite has been gone across the Northwest Ohio now for, for months, and, and thousands of people, literally thousands of people in our diocese have experienced that love. We believe that he said what he meant and meant what he said. When he proclaimed that his body is real food and his blood is real drink. Simply put, Mass Impact is a nonprofit movement seeking the heart of God in the very heart of his Catholic Church. Uh, people just keep kept coming. And coming. Not just in a moment, but, but to surrender their entire lives. We desire our hearts to be moved by what moves His. And to see that happening monthly. We are responding to an urgent call at an urgent time. The recent Popes, John Paul said, now's the time. This is the moment. We are taking big steps in faith throughout our diocese and beyond. I want to buckle my chin strap and take the field. And we are seeing tremendous growth. I mean, I'm just roused and emboldened to mission, to do something. We cannot do it alone. We need you right now. Please partner with us. Go to massimpact.us right now and click on the Contribute tab. If you and I respond in faith right now, we will see souls in heaven who would not have been there had we said no. It was nothing short of amazing. Does it have that same kind of effect on you? Please go to massimpact.us and contribute. It's time to move. The great feast of our Lord's birth is not far away. When we get to that day, can you think of anything greater than God's love more fully alive in your marriage and family? Join us in choosing to receive that unsurpassed gift right now. Presents for Christmas is a seven-week adventure into the very heart of Christ's Mass. Find out more and join us now at presentsforchristmas.com. That's P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E-F-O-R-Christmas.com.